0: So I'm Ben Shaw and you're listening to Out the Gate, the podcast about sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay. Today's show is sponsored by sun-powered yachts. There are so many benefits of having solar on your boat, clean, quiet, abundant power. And today's panels are more efficient than ever, so much so that if you already have solar, you might want to consider upgrading. And if you're looking for new panels, solar controllers, wiring, and other solar gear, or even just someone to talk to about installation and upgrades, you need to contact Lyle and Katie at Sun Powered Yachts. They really know solar, and as sailors themselves, they cater to the boating community. Now, I met Katie and Lyle at the Richmond Boat Show and had Katie on the podcast way back on episode 10. And after talking with them, I knew without question that I'd reach back out to Sun Powered Yachts when it was time to upgrade my panels. And today I'm installing new Maxion 415 watt panels from Sun Powered Yachts that are going to allow me the peace and quiet of going for days without running the engine. Ah, I love that. Also, for listeners in the Bay Area, panels are available for pickup in Hayward, California. So it saves you a bundle on shipping. Find out more and order your own panels at sunpoweredyachts.com. A special shout-out to John McKenzie, who joined the Out the Gate crew recently. Thanks to John for becoming a Patreon patron for Out the Gate. He, along with the other patrons, will be getting Out the Gate t-shirts that are hot off the press. I'll be reaching out to all of you patrons to get your addresses and confirm what size shirt you want. Now, if you enjoy the show or just need another t-shirt, consider heading over to patreon.com forward slash out the gate and supporting this show. The podcast takes time and money to host and produce, so I really appreciate all the support to keep it going. Okay, this week I'm especially excited to share a conversation I had with Malcolm Morgan. He's a marine electrician who's been in the business for decades, gathering knowledge and expertise in marine wiring and electronics. And We talk about everything from lightning protection to proper grounding to the dangers of swimming around marinas he has a lot of really helpful insights for boats big and small so well, let's jump right in
1: hi i'm malcolm morgan a longtime career marine electrician sort of in five different realms and my company does Electrical system design for all types of boats, lightning protection design, corrosion control, and corrosion investigations. And I'm also a yacht broker. Very and cool. I also teach classes in uh, electrical safety for harbor master groups, boat owner groups, and um, for the boat building school here in Sausalito. I'm a big supporter of their programs now.
0: Which boat building school? The- the Spalding
1: uh, Marine Center, Yeah, their Boatworks 101 program. Which we're sitting
0: not far from here. Yes. yes. Yeah. That's a great, great place. Um, I just did a little work over there with some of the um, apprentices that they have. Did a little workshop with them. Now, I'm excited to talk to you because I am doing a lot of electrical work right now on my boat. And your name kept popping up, including this past weekend when I was sitting at my daughter's softball game. She's all of nine years old, <laughs> and Buddy, who has a daughter who's the same age, was sitting next to me, and we were talking about the work I was doing, he's like, you know what? I installed a fireplace on a boat by a guy who does a lot of electrical work, <laughs> and, and Malcolm Morgan, you should talk to him. like, as a matter of fact, I'm going to. <laughs> so um, all roads lead back to you, Malcolm.
1: I hear that a lot, actually. I, I, I Deliberately don't advertise. I'm a little hard to find, but uh, oftentimes by the time the client lands with me, they've been on a bit of a search, yeah. and they've heard the name three or four times through the network, through Boat Yards. Uh, surveyors particularly do a lot of classes for surveyors. That's great so to um, be in demand that way. Divers uh, divers are my eyes and ears in the corrosion business. Yeah, so a lot of yeah, 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 yeah.
0: That's one. Oh, yeah. Before we even started talking, you were showing me some – horror story pictures of meltdowns on boats. We're going to get to your story, but before we jump in, I just want to emphasize why it's so important, the electrical. I think it's something that often boaters are a little, don't understand as much. They get into it for the sailing or for being on the water. And more and more, electrical is, with all the electronics we have on board, just such a integral part of boating. And can become <laughs> a real problem. What kind of things are do you see out there? Do you, do you, do you see a lack of understanding, or are people becoming more savvy? What do what do you encounter?
1: That is a great question. Um, I often joke in the classes that, from our perspective, row, power, sail, kayak, canoe, to battleship, everything between—they all really run on electricity. Uh-huh. You're talking about how it has a. Kayak with a GPS, depth sounder, stereo, and underwater (laughs) lights, because we can. Yeah, Um,
0: which I just have to mention is a little bit of a departure from when my father used to tell me stories of cruising. The first time he sailed across the Pacific, he had one light, I believe, for the compass, and a six-volt battery that they would actually carry to to a gas station to get charged. So, things have
1: evolved a little bit since the 60s. The old <laughs> canvas and kerosene days, yeah, yeah. The longer answer to your question is that there's so much trickle down now um, with systems and stuff, electrical yeah. appliances, and let's face it, a lot of safety and security features and just a lot of convenience features yeah. onto smaller and smaller boats. I have a friend, a friend, and a client who just kayaked to Hawaii successfully. Took him two tries, but the kayak was. Pretty well kitted out. With Was
0: this um, D- Demereau? Cyril S- Demiro, Cyril Demiro. Demiro. Yeah. yeah, I had him on the program. Wonderful guy. Yes, yes. Right. So
1: I did his initial design. Um, then I had to fix some things that weren't built the way we really liked uh-huh. and um, taught him how to maintain the systems. That's a 13-foot boat going across the ocean with uh. satellite communications, uh, five solar panels, I believe, autopilot, a couple different lighting systems, and a uh, radar pinger. I forget what it's called, the... E tracks or something like that. I've uh-huh. done an interesting number of really small, like these extreme adventure boats that are pretty well loaded up with electronics mostly. Because not
0: only the electronics, but the systems that power of them, the batteries are getting smaller and more energy dense. So you can really put amazing electronics on the small
1: boats. Absolutely. The advent of lithium batteries has really changed a lot of what you can have on board, and also just the overall efficiency. The trickle down into small and smaller boats is something. I've been doing this for 50 years now. Hmm. I'm 60 years old. I've been doing it since I was 10. Wow. Okay. Well, we'll yeah. get there. <laughs> but I see systems now. As an example, I, I sold a 32-foot Boston Whaler, one of their high-end boats, yeah. uh, a year and a half ago. That 32-foot powerboat that is mostly cockpit, it's not a cabin cruiser, but that 32-foot powerboat has a 50-amp shoreline and a 30-amp shoreline, and it can use wow. all of that with central vacuum, I believe two-zone air conditioning, two separate air conditioners, an electric grill in the cockpit, an induction cooktop, a microwave, a drawer freezer, a drawer fridge, a big cockpit freezer. Um, Is that all AC? That's all on AC or generator, yeah. So wow. these, these boats are just loaded with systems. Uh, we also just sold a Pursuit, one of my favorite like go fast power boats yeah uh 38 footers same thing but even more so um two isolation transformers two separate shoreline systems every electric appliance you could have in a high-end condo on these pretty small boats
0: and that's the thing that you're dealing with high voltage on these boats and that's where you can it can lead to to issues if something's not done right
1: absolutely the um A big part of our work is troubleshooting uh, corrosion problems and Mm. also safety issues with household appliances being applied to a boat or well-intended, maybe even well-trained land-based electricians following land-based standards on a boat that can turn a boat. It's interesting
0: you mentioned that because just last night I was perusing my Nigel Calder before (laughs) before falling asleep, and he was talking about how often the ground – now, this is getting a little nitty-gritty, but the ground and the neutral on some home appliances are connected, and that's – a Complete no no.
1: Absolutely. Uh, boat. That's the number one problem we end up troubleshooting on a typical power boat, usually with washer dryer, yeah. trash compactor, uh, mini fridge, uh, wine coolers, all of these household appliances that you can take a perfectly safe boat, go to Home Depot and buy some mini fridge, plug it in onto a boat that otherwise would be perfectly safe, and now it's an absolutely deadly boat because this neutral ground connection inside the appliance will send electricity into the water around the boat. Hmm. I have it all on PowerPoint. It's much easier <laughs> to explain <laughs> with my, no, my but moving arrows Just as from
0: a 10,000-foot level, the, so the, the ground can become actively carrying the current. And then, of course, on boats, the ground is connected to the water, because yep. that is the ground. Yeah. So then you electrify the water.
1: Yeah, yep. the, the normally non-current carrying part of the boat becomes part of the return current path. Yes. That's, that's where it's so dangerous, particularly mm. in fresh water. Right, um, which can become deadly for somebody swimming. Swimming or just getting on and off the boat. Th- like in a raft-up situation, going from one boat to another, you reach over and grab the rigging of your neighboring sailboat. And oh if they're gosh. at a very different potential, doesn't take much voltage and not much current at all. Thri- 30 milliamps is the deadly dose, the typical adult male. Wow. Less so for a smaller person or a child.
0: Yeah. And there are devices that now that you can put in in your AC system. I forget what they're. EI. There's an ELCI breaker. ELCI.
1: It's okay. a really good device, yeah. yeah. It's a combination overload breaker and a ground fault sensing breaker in one okay. device. And those have been pretty common in Europe for many, many years. Right. Um, when we first started doing my electrical safety training seminars, mm-hmm. I went on a lecture tour with a, a well known uh, electrician, Kevin Ritz, who was the chief instructor for ABYC for a long time. Mm. And Kevin and I co-lectured, and he told the, son the story of his son being electrocuted in the water. Oh, and that led down the path where we both became advocates for safety around boats and marinas. And that's what really sort of drove me to do this harbor inspection work that I do, yeah. code compliance work. Um, and we found that, like in Europe, they didn't even have stats for the number of people electrocuted in water around boats. Because for 30 years, they've had what they call an RCD, a residual current device, works just like a GFI that was just standard fare on every production boat in Europe since the 70s that's just really becoming accepted practice now in the the last few years in the United States that's a simple device that can save lives
0: why the difference why was why were the United States so far behind on that
1: Uh, why do we have 60 hertz
0: when the rest (laughs) of the world has 50 hertz (laughs) why do we use the imperial system (laughs) and and
1: drive on the wrong side of the road yeah ask a lot of people yeah okay
0: uh, we won't go down that road. Un- unanswerable <laughs> questions. But let's get back to where I usually start these interviews. I was so excited to just jump right into the electrical questions. But um, how did you
1: get started sailing or being on the water? It started with an early childhood fascination with toy sailboats. Really? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Do you remember your first toy sailboat? Uh, very much so, yeah. carried it on the plane home from England. My, my mother's from the United Kingdom. And I had this three foot long, four foot tall sailboat that I, I insisted carrying in my lap. Putting that thing into the lagoon at Carmel Beach as a kid and sailing around, swimming after it and figuring out how the wind moving on the, across the sails made a sailboat work, led me to just nag my dad to death to take us sailing. Uh, and I remember he saying that someone in the office, their family had a sailboat. So at the age of 10, uh, we went sailing one fateful day down in uh, Carmel Bay, where it's normally cold and wet and foggy and foreboding. Mm -hmm. And it seemed like this day was perfectly designed to change the course of this young family because it was probably 80 degrees, sunny, sparkling. And as we drove down into what's now known as um, Stillwater Cove Yacht Club, there's all these boats sitting out there on moorings. And here's this 60-foot trimaran looked like a spaceship. It literally looked like some. This was back when uh, Star Wars was sort of just coming out. Yeah. And um, this boat just looked like nothing else we'd ever seen. So we spent the afternoon sailing. and um, Aboard this I, trimaran? Yeah. I was hooked at that point already. But then we finished out the day, came back to the mooring on the big boat. And the father said, hey, why don't you take the Morgan kids over uh, to the Hobie Cat and sail that around for a while? So we got in the Avon Inflatable with a seagull outboard. Uh-huh. <laughs> I know it's <that> seagull. <laughs> Rope seagulls. start. You wrap around the flywheel and I pull the cord. <laughs> Classic. And I'm kind of dating myself here, but yeah. The, um,
0: we had one of those in the, the basement when I was growing up for years and years because that's what my parents had used. When it, they
1: probably <laughs> it probably still runs. It probably Those things
0: are indestructible.
1: Right? The, uh, the Model T of outboard motors. Um, but anyway, we get out on this Hobie Cat and we're sailing back and forth past their big trimaran. And um, we're looking at my dad, and he's watching us with wide eyes as this really colorful Hobie cat went zooming by back and forth, back and forth. And about two weeks later, he shows up at our house with a Hobie cat. And about two weeks after that, he quit his job and bought the Hobie cat dealership. He had a cush job with the city of Monterey at the time in the city planning office. And we ended up, as a young family, buying this boat store. uh, We bought a zoo. We bought a boat store. After and sailing one time. <coughs> we'd been sailing one time. <laughs> we hadn't even sailed the Hobie Cat at this point. Um, the Hobie Cat, in typical dad fashion, he got a deal on one that had been skewered by a forklift, so had two <laughs> big holes in the sides. So you get to learn fiberglass work, too. Yeah, uh, he had someone fix it. But buying the store was really the, the intro into this world. One quick aside is that the owner of the store was going to stay on for a year or two to teach us sailing and how to run a business. We mm-hmm. knew neither. Uh, and he had to go pick up his boat in Southern California be right back in a week or so. And he was lost at sea. He died oh and was never seen again. But you guys and were left on your own. At 10 years old, I was suddenly the repair department because I had played with go-karts and mini-bikes and toy trains and things, and I knew a little bit about electricity. Okay. And right away was pulled in by the people there in the harbor in Monterey to start fixing boats. And i uh, been in this ever since. I've left a couple of times. Uh, got into racing cars, building race cars. But being in the boat business a bit like being in the mafia. No one wants you to quit. You really can't leave. <laughs> you, can't get you try up. to leave, and next thing you know, the, the family pulls you back.
0: <laughs> what was more of a pull to you, the sailing and being on the water or the working on the boats? I ask because we're getting ready to go off cruising. And last night at dinner, I said to my, my wife, I think I, I enjoy – working on the boat almost as much as i'm going to enjoy cruising she says no i definitely think you do that is a
1: common thread actually one of my greatest projects today was this really incredible 53 foot custom sailboat we spent two and a half almost three years with the client hmm. building every system and every redundant backup system the boat actually had a central walk-through engine room with a small machine shop. He had a drill press, a grinder, oh, a little a tiny dream. mill. It, it was super cool. The batteries were up on the wall, like batteries under glass. It was like a shrine to like, it was oh by far gosh. the biggest That's system I'd ever done to date. And they finally got ready to leave. And the, the client was heavily involved. He did a lot of the engineering for me. He did a mm. lot of the um, the legwork, sourcing the bits and pieces to my spec. And he'd had the boat built for him. So at this point, he had been slowly building this boat for about 15 years. They hopped on and quickly sailed down to Panama Canal, through the canal, got to Florida, and sold the boat. <laughs> Realizing <laughs> huh? sailing wasn't as much fun as just engineering the thing. Yeah. His wife was really into sewing, and she had a sewing room with four different sewing machines oh and gosh. a whole power system devoted to these very expensive machines. And she just loved the idea of crafting this very – convertible space where things had to flip over and fold out and yeah. on slides. And once they were out at sea they realized it just wasn't wasn't for them. No, wasn't that fun. Yeah. Uh, yeah,
0: that's not an uncommon story where people get very excited about sailing. Then real I had a family friend who went off cruising and said, You know what? There is no cheeseburger in paradise <laughs> <laughs> Just really did, didn't click for him. It's Fixing but, your uh, boat in strange and unusual places. Yeah, what yeah. Refer
1: to it as, yeah.
0: So you quickly, at age ten, got into the um, repairing of boats and other people's boats. And what drew you then to the electrical side of things? Uh,
1: the electrical was right there from the beginning. Um, I, apparently, I had more knack with electrical than the other um available talent there in mm-hmm. monterey so just i sort of stepped into it wasn't a career choice okay <laughs> it was quickly realized that that was uh, a void that a lot of people there were people working on engines there were riggers mm-hmm. there were shipwrights there um, back when boats were still about half the fishing fleet in monterey was still wood boats. yeah there was really anyone doing electrical there was one uh, friend's father who was quite a bit older just about retirement age, but he couldn't retire either. He'd been doing some electrical and some electronics, like electronics repair, back when you would literally take a radar apart and fix something instead of just tossing the box and getting a new one. Yeah. But no one was really doing electrical and wiring, and I've just been in that void space ever since. Wow. That's still a void space here. Despite my efforts to train new young talent, there's still way more de- demand for electrical here in the San Francisco Bay Area really? than we can fill.
0: It's such an interesting, especially in boating, such an interesting aspect of it, because a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. I mean, people really think, oh, especially it's DC, 12 volts, I'll do it. Actually, so my boat used to be my parents' boat, and they took it cruising for many years. It was the one thing my father apologized for. He said, there's, you know, 40 years of me putting new wires here and there, <laughs> and now it's a
1: rat's nest, So, which is why I'm redoing
0: it now. You must see all kinds of crazy
1: things. When I do my electrical classes, I often open with something like, particularly like with harbor masters, where we're talking about electrical shock hazards in the water, which is almost always caused by a boat, not by the harbor wiring. We talk about how people go buy a fancy new car, mm-hmm. and they wouldn't dream of taking a hacksaw to the steering linkage or taking half the bolts out of the brakes. People will buy an airplane, and they wouldn't dream of unbolting half of the wing assembly, right? But people who know nothing about electricity buy a fancy boat and just dive right into the electrical system, adding stuff, removing ground wires, because they heard that wives' tale is 100 years old, since we've had electricity on boats, that the ground somehow causes a problem, and you should unground your boat. So yes, a lot of ill-informed or under-informed Boat owners trying to do their own electrical installations is where we see most of the really scary stuff.
0: Yeah. Grounding is such an issue, and it means so many different things because you've got grounded, you've got grounding, you've got lightning protection, you've got corrosion protection. I understand that you did a lightning system for the Commodore
1: at yes. one point. Yep. Yeah, Flash Girl, a Wiley 39 sailboat. Mm. Yeah, that was, a, that was an interesting system. He was um, on
0: the program. What a, what a great guy. What an interesting character. Well, <laughs> tell me a little bit about that job. And then um, I want to ask you about lightning protection because that is a whole field that is, sure. no, I wouldn't say a mystery to me, but something that I'm fascinated by.
1: With lightning protection, I, I'm very upfront that I am not a lightning expert. Uh, I'm a marine electrical expert. And even the lightning experts that I have worked with didn't understand corrosion, they didn't understand like a single sideband radio ground plane, uh-huh. they didn't understand the AC safety ground and how it has to relate to these other ground systems. So, um, In my electrical class, I have a whole little section on the five typical grounding systems that a boat can have. Um, starting with almost every boat that has an electrical system, any electrical system will have a DC negative return path. That's not ground, it's a DC negative. That is the return current path for everything that's battery powered on a boat. If it has a shore power system, it will have an AC safety ground, which is normally not current carrying. I'm doing air quotes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that is there just in the event of a fault. And it's not designed to carry any current for any other reason other than safety to trip off the main shore power breaker or the main generator breaker or something like that. There's the, Single sideband radio ground plane, if the boat has that, those are becoming less common. Mm-hmm. But done properly, it's 100 square feet of copper foil or screen or mesh. I, I'm shaking neckline. my head because I just <laughs> took off so much look copper that's,
0: it's just it was just crumbling green stuff. It's still in the bilge. Yeah, so.
1: <laughs> yeah the, the funky old, especially the, the janky stuff. Sorry, West Marine, but uh, an <laughs> unplugged to that thin tinfoil copper foil that they sell yeah, at West yeah. Marine is not what you really should be having. There's a, a four-inch wide, very thick version that really works well. So me that's another grounding system. Then there's the lightning protection system, mm-hmm. um, which is, again, each of these needs to be its own separate discrete system. Done properly, uh, we're going to come to the most important one in our work, which is the cathodic bonding protection or mm. corrosion protection system. Mm-hmm. Uh, The bonding system is usually a series of heavy green wires, and the size of those wires varies depending on the size of the boat and the proximity to the mast or to anything that's likely to be struck by lightning. Um, That lightning protection system is usually heavy cables terminating at a big plate of some kind uh, under the boat outside the hull, whereas the radio ground plane is inside the hull, connecting engines, metal tanks, Sometimes big traveler tracks or something like that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we'll lay a big screen uh, in the lazarette and fiberglass over it. But each of these systems, particularly the cathodic bonding system for corrosion protection, those systems should all be connected together at one common point, not interconnected all over the place. We do a lot of work now with these large houseboats, Mm -hmm. typically metal hull houseboats, And whenever we get a corrosion complaint on one of those, it's usually because someone has installed a big battery bank up at the front of the boat, 48 volts typically with a big solar array. Most of these houseboats now are running half an acre of solar panels up on the top because these boats are quite large. And then they'll run a giant battery bank with sometimes two or three or four inverters to power all the AC appliances. Mm. And if they just ground that to the hull, and at the back of the boat where the two engines and the generator are located – also grounded to the hull, but those banks are not grounded together with a big cable, the boat hull itself becomes a very large conductor, and every conductor has voltage drop. And if one end of the boat is half a volt different than the opposite end of the boat, you get a lot of corrosion just within the hull. Wow. All of this work has to be applied pretty carefully. And there's only a few of us who really do all five of those systems well. uh, In the entire U.S. that I'm aware of, (laughs) small group nerdy yeah. society um and that's why i try to spend so much time doing uh, education and training and awareness and i usually do these seminars at no charge or just for expenses because i'm mostly concerned about safety i don't want to see anyone get killed that doesn't it's all completely preventable yeah, like the harbor inspection harbor inspections and we do a lot of work with the waterfront private homes i just met a contractor at a job site last week who's doing a bunch of waterfront homes in Tiburon, he's like, oh, Mm. my God, we need to get you on every job site we have. Yeah, I
0: didn't even think about that. The houseboats, the waterfront homes, there's all the water-land interface.
1: I I hope the listeners are getting the understanding. This is an expanding field. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, Because there's so much electricity being applied to smaller and smaller boats and a waterfront house. The the houses I'm looking across the bay right now at Beach Road and Belvedere those homes were mostly built in the 50s, and they had 25 AC appliances back in the day, if yeah, that. That right. was a, would have been a fancy house back yeah. then. Now those houses have all been remodeled four or five times, and they'll have 120 AC appliances. But the wiring hasn't necessarily wiring been hasn't evolved, and most of those homes are not grounded because they're sitting oh on gosh. a little footing that's just barely touching land there's nowhere to ground that house. You put a 50-foot powerboat in the water in front of the house, and you instantly get all these leak currents to go through the wiring into the boat, into the water in front of the house. Yikes.
0: If people are interested in finding your seminars, how do they go about doing that?
1: Eventually, I'll be putting a lot of this on YouTube. Okay. Uh, So feel free to uh, prompt me, listeners, to (laughs) put my (laughs) material on YouTube. Through the Spalding Marine Center, that's where I typically okay. do most of my seminars that the public would have interest in. Great. Yeah, uh, so if you get on their website and get on their mailing list, we do those typically two to three times a year. And they're very hands-on. It's usually a half day, pretty reasonable cost. It's a fundraiser for the school. And uh, very hands-on. That's uh, great. Very very well Do you received. know
0: Clark Beek? Yes. Okay. So Dave Clark and I are, are, are friends, and uh, I need to have him on the podcast as well. But I know he does some work as well and has given seminars at Spalding.
1: Yes, his is more on the electrical 101. Mine is more on the 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 more esoteric parts of the system. Okay. The grounding lightning protection. So yeah.
0: So I said I wanted to ask you about lightning. I do have a specific question and this is a completely self-serving question. When I read about lightning protection, as you mentioned, the first thing that is always mentioned is an underwater metal bar. Yes. Uh, For those of us who have not yet installed a metal bar along the outside of the hall, is there a way to do
1: any type of lightning protection? Where should we start? It usually starts with when we approach a system, a lightning protection system, and this is almost tongue-in-cheek, but this is often how it ends up manifesting itself. I give the client three options, level one, level two, and level three. I do a lot of level one, some level two, and I've only done a couple of level three systems, mm-hmm. which is level one is we sort of tell you where to stand <laughs> and not to, not, not <laughs> not to hold touch. on to. <laughs> level one is we're just going to protect the crew. Because yeah. when, you, when you talk about what's really required for lightning protection, most often it's the newer boats that have very complicated navigation electronics. They've spent a lot of money to save weight in mm-hmm. the rig. And we tell them we've got to put this big metal rod at the top of the mast and a big (laughs) wire (laughs) down the inside of the mast. And then these heavy cables connecting all the stuff together. You see them starting to like lean back in their chair. So a level one system really is just sort of a, a drafted plan. We post on the wall In if lightning threatens, assemble the crew here. Follow these procedures. Maybe you put the electronics in the oven, which does kind of work. Mm-hmm. The handheld uh, ePERB and the handheld VHFs and things like that. Right. A Faraday cage. Try to get... So we do an assessment of the boat to look at what the most likely path from the masthead to the water would be and where I think the internal... It's called a side flash, uh, where a big spark might zap from the base of the mast, if it was a deck-stepped mast, mm-hmm. to the engine... Right, so ah. you don't want to have someone standing in the companionway on the ladder. If there's gonna be a twelve-foot lightning bolt from the base of the mast to the front of the engine, right, and have a person standing there. So that's level one. Level one is generally like a racing boat. There's a, is not going to tolerate any weight penalty putting things on the rig, but at least they have some sort of a plan. Level two is we try to protect the rig and the crew, meaning we'll sometimes run a cable down the mast, or we'll use if it's an aluminum mast, we'll use the mast itself with some sort of an air terminal at the top. The general goal is to have a very low resistance path from the top of the mast, our highest point, all the way to the water with no sharp bends, with no other potential targets nearby. Like a lot of boats now, we're seeing a lot of advent of these self-tacking jibs, and I have this big athwart ships traveler track right Mm -hmm. at the base Mm -hmm. of the mast. Well, that's often right above the V-berth, and if there's a metal tank under the V-berth and someone's laying in that bed, what are the r- chances of a uh, lightning bolt forming from the base of the mast to that track to the metal tank right through the people that might be laying there to the bow thruster that's below the bunk or below the fuel tank so we have to look at things like that and try to assess where the danger zones on the boat are with a level two we'll usually ground the mast to the keel if we can boats that have internal poured ballasts that's usually not an option that's where we start looking more at external plates okay if it's a catch, we'll usually have to put a bar between the two masts underwater. Mm. We try to make every part of the system do at least two or three jobs. So if we have a big copper strip on the outside of the boat, we'll typically terminate that near the base of the mast, and that's where our lightning ground cables connect to the front of the lightning strip. At the back of the lightning strip, near the engine, which is typically near the mizzen mast if it's a catch or a yawl. The back of that strip—that's where we we'll attach the anode. That also protects the entire bonding system. Since we're gonna have a bolt going through the hull anyway, that's a great place to put a nice big zinc or aluminum anode. Mm-hmm. So that protects the copper strip, protects the rest of the bonding system as well. With a level three system, we try to protect the electronics and the crew and the rigging. Okay. Level three typically means we do have to have something at the top of the mast. We do have to have an external plate on the outside of the hull or two. Or we'll have um, surge suppressors for all the electronics and all the antenna cables. We know that lightning doesn't like to make sharp turns. And if you take a, a wire and coil it, that becomes a natural inductor. It's resistant to surges. Interesting. So we'll typically do a small coil. I'm giving away all my trade secrets. <laughs> this is all IP, by the way, audience. <laughs> but Morgan, hey, Morgan most Marine people we're not, will not be
0: up to doing this themselves. They will call you and say, hey,
1: how do we do this? Or yep. and i do a lot of owner assisted installations i do a lot of engineering where i provide them the drawing and work right alongside the owner Um, but i mean i'm just going to pause
0: just for a second interrupt you here and just say i love the fact that you are actively trying to pass on this information like you said through your seminars training people and you know it's it's information that needs to get out there and people need to keep doing and there are there's a need for it and a desire for it. and so yeah,
1: Following the example of some other great mentors in, in my life where I'm definitely the give-back phase of my career and happy to share the knowledge as much as I can, within reason. <laughs> <laughs> if we're talking about a specific boat, that right. becomes more of a consulting. Sure. If I can speak to a broad audience, right? yeah. if I can go to the Seattle Boat Show and give a seminar about Shock hazards in the water and corrosion right? right. And demystify that. No. So I mean, you obviously
0: audience? can't give no, no, no. away your services for free. <laughs> no work as well, but um, but sharing general knowledge and the importance and sharing the main themes is, is fabulous. But back to the the specific lightning. Connection. I had a question. You said lightning does not like to go around sharp, sharp corners. corners. If you had a, I've heard that you should d- disconnect the antenna from your VHF. Is better is to,
1: if you carefully design a, I, I have never even come up with a name for the coil, but it's essentially an inductor coil mm-hmm. with the cables at the masthead, and then, again, at the base of the mast, and then surge suppressors in the coax at the radio, mm. and maybe another one at the base of the mast. Okay. And those, some of the surge suppressors that we get have a ground wire attachment point, so we can ground the shield to the wire that's going to the keel or to the lightning uh, plate on the outside of the hull thereby shunting any energy that might try to come down the mast uh, how mast big how, what
0: gauge is that ground cable for carrying that well, current coming
1: off of the these the little surge suppressors, suppressors yeah. that would be a fairly small wire okay so there the minimum and we can go down the rabbit hole of sure <laughs> yeah, things, we don't need to the get minimum to for a down conductor is 4 gauge okay and my rule of thumb is i typically go up a size because i want that to be an effective conductor Ten years from now when it's half corroded and maybe it's had a lot of abrasion or something like so that. So up to two or something. Times. So we'd go up anything over 50 feet, we go up a, a full gauge Okay. and then size up accordingly you know, if it's a really tall. And you can
0: and see then distance. why it starts getting heavy quickly.
1: Totally worth it. Yeah. yeah oh, yeah. <laughs> don't, don't, uh, I'm
0: not arguing with it here. But, uh, yeah, I can see why racers who are trying to save on every ounce start to... Roll their eyes.
1: And so to date, there's only been one of my systems that got struck. You uh-huh. asked about it earlier. Okay. I was going to ask this. I want to uh, hear. This is the special f- uh, vessel Flash Girl, uh, Warwick Tomkins' boat. Uh-huh. Uh, it was a pretty unique set of circumstances, that boat, because the boat uh, had been left on a mooring when they flew back to the mainland. This is, uh, I believe, on the big island of Hawaii. I'm not sure which island it was. But they don't get a lot of lightning in Hawaii. This was an incredibly powerful electrical storm. And the lightning bolt that hit the boat really like did a lot of damage around the area. Now, mm-hmm. electrically, my st- system worked really well. Flash grill is a little bit unique in that it's a dagger board. The keel moves. So we didn't have the typical keel bolt that we would ground the mast mm. to. It's a keel-stepped mast, but below the mast, there's nothing there. It's just bare hull. The keel is actually a couple of feet aft of the mast itself. So what we came up with was this big copper plate that resembles a spider, and uh, Work made it himself. Did a fabulous job, like he does everything else. Uh, he and I both joke that my tagline is, "Anything worth doing is worth overdoing." Uh huh. <laughs> I, like I like that. I like that. The the copper spider was vacuum bagged to the outside of the hull. Wow. And painted over. And one of the ways we can tell that it worked pretty effectively, there was really no electrical damage to the boat. It did suffer mechanical damage. But when the boat was hauled later, you could see where the copper spider had been painted over and with some fairing compound. But there was little pinholes all the way around exactly outlining, more at the center. So you could tell most of the energy dissipated, it, dissipated at the center. But definitely out at the edges of the spider, there was uh, discharge through it. So it actually blew through the coating. No wow. electrical damage to the boat, really, whatever, whatsoever. And the um, top of the mast, he didn't want a masthead air terminal. As it's called a okay. lightning rod.
0: And so those things that look like koosh balls at the top? Those the little... do not
1: work. That's, okay, that's what, that's what I was going to That's a hype. That's a hype, okay. <laughs> yeah. um, keeps birds away, I suppose. But, uh, <laughs> an air terminal, ideally, the latest thinking is that it's a rod taller than anything else at the top mm-hmm. of the mast that has... Um, it has to be structurally big enough to, to withstand the motion at the masthead. Mm, so it's got to mm-hmm. be pretty robust, usually mm-hmm. a half inch to five-eighths of an inch in diameter and tapering to a three-eighths inch ball tip over the last three inches. Okay, Some of them still have a point, but they taper over the last three inches of their length. Um, well, Flash Girl didn't have anything at the masthead. And under the, what had been the masthead wind sensor, was, which was just turned to ash, and vaporized there was uh, some metal removed from the top of the masthead plate the the mast crane as it's called Um, yeah about a third of the way through the thickness of that plate was just eaten away and this this was described as like the hand of god lightning bolt coming (laughs) attaching to the top of this poor boat sitting on a mooring and um, it was quite a strike
0: well what validation for your work
1: Well, that's the only one that's ever been struck the idea behind the system if it's done properly is it really does reduce your chance of being struck. So maybe <laughs> <laughs> maybe I take that back. <laughs> no, well, that's. <laughs> but if you are struck, it, it also a, protects. A, with a lightning storm like that, and it was the only sort of tall thing around, it was inevitable. Yeah. Um, yeah. The idea being that if you have this low impedance, this low resistance path from the tallest point of the boat to that plate in the water, the boat electrically becomes less visible because there's no voltage difference between the water and the top of your mast. Okay. So what happens, the worst case scenario would be a, a wooden sailboat with a tall wooden mast. Without a, a conductor like that, you could have half a million volts difference between the little steaming light or the tricolor running light at the top of the mast and the keel might be hundreds of thousands of volts difference and that's when you get all the damage to the boat. Wow. The inherent moisture in the wood turns to steam and plasma essentially and just vaporizes Yeah, everything yeah. expands and does lots of wood boats are the hardest to protect other than uh, but we looked at prior to the, the discussion here uh, a catamaran with a rotating carbon fiber mast those are pretty tricky right and we don't have anything right below the mast to try to steer all that lightning energy to so that, mm. that that'll be an interesting one yeah. i haven't done one of those yeah always a new I'll challenge i'd imagine <laughs> no guarantees because <laughs> I have a disclaimer I get clients to sign <laughs> there's uh,
0: so many questions and I could go on and on and on asking you uh, specifics but I don't want to continue get too much in the weeds but Malcolm what haven't we talked about that you, you'd want to mention to listeners
1: where I think the biggest untapped uh, technology is around sailing and boating would be to really develop high-efficiency motor sailing. I don't know anyone that's doing that work. There was a system for a while that had a, a pretty nice-looking, very sleek sail drive with an electric motor, and the sail drive had a variable-pitch propeller, hmm. and it would do regen while you're sailing. That's really sort of the holy grail for a sailboat, yeah. to have a sail a sail drive or some sort of propulsion unit that could generate while you're sailing and could you know provide forward motion for the boat. But also to be able to vary the pitch and vary the input to the drivetrain so that it would be really, really efficient while you're sailing in just light air or maybe going upwind. Motor sailing works great. We know that. But to make it work really well with an internal combustion engine, you really need to have a good way to feather the or adjust the pitch of the propeller. This Um, sort of holy grail boat that i mentioned earlier in the podcast had that had a hundestet variable pitch propeller Hmm. you know perkins diesel engine that 53 foot boat it's fairly heavy boat with lots and lots of systems but he could motor sail at a thousand rpm burning a quarter of a gallon an hour and in light air and push the boat like eight or nine knots wow pointing up wind pretty pretty close to the wind because it was so efficient and he would the hunter uses this big wheel looks like the back of a box car that big wheel you see engineer turning it's uh-huh. a pretty crude device you could probably have a better linkage to control it but he was literally tapping that with his knuckles to just make tiny little adjustments watching the exhaust gas temperature gauge and the tachometer and the fuel burn gauge he had all three on that boat to optimize the input from the engine versus the sails and the engine was just barely cruising along but without the engine speed would drop to half. So I've, I've always envisioned what I thought would be a really cool race around the world, which we have in sailing now. There's been some attempts to do that with powerboats, but what if we had a motor sailing race around the world? We allowed so many gallons of fuel, and that's all the fuel you get, and you can use power assist in certain conditions to really help drive the technology to make our sailboats more efficient, which I'm hoping, uh, we have a wonderful designer in the Bay Area, Tom Wiley, who's been building these sail-powered cargo vessels and uh, certainly has done some really cool concepts.
0: I went sailing recently on a Wiley cat. Yeah, Yep.
1: Yep. So what if we had a way to really boost the efficiency of both power and sail by applying a lot of our technology to the efficiency of engine and sail combination? That's, That's fascinating. Because
0: on the uh, there's a lot of attention being given right now on the other side of things, where, you know, cargo vessels and tankers are starting to think back about sail. Yep. What if we think about really making an auxiliary engine not so auxiliary, but integral to
1: in the combination with the sail power? Yeah. yeah. And it's it's much easier on a large vessel because a lot of this hardware, like the, the Honda step mechanism, is two propeller shafts, one shaft within a shaft, and big mm-hmm. gearboxes. The the components are quite large and and bulky, but to bring that down to smaller boats, uh, we now have some pretty nice electric drive systems. There's uh, any number of companies making pretty reliable and pretty small and light efficient electric propulsion systems, but I haven't seen any really focused on optimizing that with sail power. That's fascinating. That's my little pipe dream. The other thing is battery technology is slowly improving. Uh, I'm a MasterVolt dealer. MasterVolt is a line of equipment made in the Netherlands. There's two, there's Victron and MasterVolt, which are like the BMW and the Mercedes of electrical equipment. They're constantly sort of upping the ante against each other. And the, the power that they're getting into these smaller and smaller and smaller battery packages is pretty amazing. Five years ago when their lithium batteries first hit the market, we sold a 12-volt battery that was about 125 pounds, 100 pounds or so. And I believe it was 200 amp hours or something like that. That same battery today is 400 amp hours. <gasps> it's $7,500. Yeah, <laughs> it's still not cheap. It's it's amazing the energy density that they're getting and also the controls. This is the other thing I'm excited about is the controls. The MasterVolt, this is a non-selling session here, but to see that the batteries communicate directly to the charger. The Mm. charger communicates Mm -hmm. directly to the display all through a network system. It's a single Cat5 cable. The alternator regulator is directly controlled by the battery. So the battery knows that it's down by 200 amp hours. You start the engine, the alternator tries to make 200 amp hours plus the loss of efficiency, so like 210 amp hours right now. So... Some of these big systems will do. We just did a system that will charge at 350 amps per hour, if you have the engine and the generator on. Oh, wow! On a big catamaran. Wow.
0: Yeah. I mean, and the thing with lithium is they'll just they'll take all the energy they can get. Yes.
1: Yeah. Very efficient. I
0: think we're going to have to do another interview, uh, Malcolm, just on lithium because people are fascinated by that. Yeah. But also, I think there's a lot of misconceptions out there. People don't understand whether it's right for them or not.
1: There's enough interest we could do a separate session, I suppose, on corrosion uh-huh. and on shock hazards. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> and on grounding. Hey.
0: And on lightning protection. I'm uh, so uh, we'll have to talk about it. Okay.
1: The thrust of my business and particularly with the, the classes and the seminars is trying to bring this really fairly complex science down to a plain English language level. I love it. So when we do like our electrical safety classes, mm-hmm. we've got the Harbor maintenance staff who might be a 40 year career union electrician and their office person who has never even seen what goes on inside of a circuit breaker panel. And they both need to come out of that session, understanding what the risks are, what the legal requirements are and how to identify and how to spot a problem. So when we do uh, like our Harbor code compliance testing, where we go and actually test the electrical system in a Harbor to check for these problems, we s- insist that they also give us their maintenance staff and we turn it into a training session. That's great. So that they are on-site doing their own initial testing. If they find something really out of sorts, then they can call us. Mm-hmm. And most of the harbors here in the Bay are now doing that. Because uh, you can't be everywhere at once. I'm happy to take the money and, and show up once a year as, as legally required, but I'd much rather have the staff on-site familiar. Yeah. And that's what's actually required by law is that the staff, including office staff, is supposed to be familiar with the standards. And know about like where the main shutoffs are and that everything is labeled and there's no swimming signs posted. Yeah. I wanna take a moment here to do a little PSA. Sure. Never really ever want to go swimming near boats plugged into shore power. Yeah. There's just no safe way to do that. Obviously we have to have divers servicing the and That boats,
0: goes double if it's in freshwater. Right.
1: Particularly in freshwater. I often bristle a little bit at the whole freshwater versus saltwater argument. Yes, the shock hazard is much greater in fresh water. Mm-hmm. We're sitting here in San Francisco Bay. I'm looking out at Richardson's Bay. We're a mile from the Golden Gate Bridge, maybe a mile and a half, which is the Pacific Ocean. This is not always salt water. Yeah. When I do a corrosion test, yeah. I often will check the salinity. Depending on the tide, this can be full seawater concentration or it could be half of that Midsummer, We're still getting enough water rushing, coming down the Sacramento Delta to have... Three or four or five feet of fresh water on top of whatever salt is sure. here, depending on what the tide's doing. So it's not always salt water. And therefore, I, I spend a lot of time trying to educate people on the fact that yes, it's a saltwater marina sometimes, but <laughs> at the danger high is tide, still there. Yeah, at yeah. high tide or a very low tide, like right now, we've got a lot of snowmelt, we've got all this fresh water moving down the river system. This could be just a tiny bit saltier than. A freshwater lake which means it's very dangerous for someone in the water around boats. so yeah. this is one where we, we spend most of our time sort of advocating for better standards and practices and i know the standard says that every harbor is legally required to test their electrical their entire electrical system annually most of the time when i show up for an electrical inspection in a 50-year-old facility it's the first time it's ever been checked and a lot of harbors up in the delta here in san francisco bay west coast uh, we go down south and do this a lot of times that's, that's never been inspected until something happens
0: how far away from a marina with boats plugged in is it safe to like how
1: far will the electricity go into yeah, the water yeah it's usually not very far so okay. in freshwater where it's the most dangerous you build a field just within a few feet of the boat okay in saltwater, current can travel a long way, but it's usually not harmful. If it if the water is conductive enough for that to happen, it's more conductive than we are, so it's not so much of a risk to us.
0: I ask because I, my boat is in Travis Marina, which is in Horseshoe Cove, and there are regular regularly swimmers swimming in that cove, and I just didn't know how much danger to an put ancient themselves. electrical system. That that yes, <laughs> <laughs> that whole marina is ancient,
1: but yes. If you think about the typical boat. 50-foot powerboat, it's got as much wiring and as many appliances as a good-sized three-bedroom home. So if you took a three-bedroom house and plugged it into an extension cord with a plug and a receptacle at each end <laughs> and dip it in the water and move it constantly in a very corrosive environment, that's what it's like trying to bring shore power board a boat, and it it's fraught with problems unless you do a lot of maintenance and due diligence to yeah. make sure that it's safe. Well, thank
0: you for the reminder. Yep. Thank you for all the information. This has been a fabulous conversation, and it's made me want to just talk more. So we'll continue the conversation.
1: I, I hope to spark interest in the listeners because it, it's a fascinating field. I still am learning. I've spent most of my career trying to be at the very forefront of technology. And even with all my efforts, it's hard to keep up. There's so much new tech coming down and new appliances, a lot of new interesting technology on the horizon. So yeah. I'm glad to be of service. I hope I find an audience with <laughs> other yeah, like minded boats. Well, if people so.
0: want to reach out to you, I mean, I know you try and keep yourself a little hidden. I don't know if you want to um, no, tell people how to absolutely. reach out so to you.
1: Absolutely. So, Malcolm Morgan Marine at gmail.com. Okay. And that's probably the easiest way to get a hold of me for electrical work. Uh, I'm also uh, Malcolm at com for brokerage. The two often go hand in hand. <laughs> I bet. A lot of my brokerage services, I get involved because the boats are now so complex that the the boat dealer doesn't understand how to use a lot of these systems or how to explain the systems. Either of those are a great way to reach me. Um, Great. Okay? Thank you. All right. Thank you.
0: That's it for this week's show. A reminder that you can keep out the gate afloat by becoming a Patreon patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can become part of the crew and get special benefits like additional content and out-the-gate swag. For those of you who have already joined, a big thank you. I'm your host, Ben Shaw. Thanks for listening. You can reach me on Instagram at outthegatesailing or email me at outthegatesailing at gmail.com. Until next time, smooth sailing.
1: Thanks for listening to the Out the Gate Podcast. Thank you.